Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today, I have in the studio two theologians, uh, theologians who are on the faculty of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, as I am. Uh, To my left is Professor Matthew Barrett, Associate Professor of Christian Theology. And to my uh, right in front of me, let's put it that way, is Matt Millsap. He is Assistant Director of Library Studies and Assistant Professor of Christian Studies. Did I get that right? Library Services. Library Services. I'm getting a reputation on this podcast as massacring my colleagues' titles, so (laughs) I'd like to apologize to the universe there. We are here to talk today about uh, a few things. The new Rob Bell documentary entitled The Heretic, gentle little title there, uh, designed to attract no attention, I assure you. And also, we're, we're going to broaden the discussion to talk about what we could call the post-evangelicals um, beyond just Bell. So, gentlemen, before uh, we tackle other subjects, I just want to throw it to you. Uh, I'll, I'll go to you first, Dr. Millsap, and just ask you, what was your quick impression of The Heretic, this Rob Bell film that just dropped? Yeah, so as far as a quick take goes, I think it's very clear the documentary that uh, the filmmakers intended to make as well that Bell was uh, amenable to them making. So uh, from what I understand, he already had a relationship with the filmmakers anyway, somewhat of a friendship, and it was connected with them, and uh, they had similar uh, concerns that Rob Bell has expressed in his own speaking engagements and uh, in his books, as we know that he as he's gone down that the road of uh, mm-hmm. post-evangelicalism. As far as the documentary goes, I mean, I thought that Rob Bell is a, is a master communicator. I mean, I think that it's no question about that. He knows how to draw a crowd. He knows how to be compelling. He knows how to ask questions that people want to hear asked. Uh, but at the same time, perfectly comfortable with staying directly in the realm of, of questioning and uh, is going to uh, present something that uh, is not going to have anything concrete as far as doctrine goes or anything that might be divisive, but instead uh, essentially preach a, a gospel of inclusivism and uh, sort of portray that gospel as some type of an elevation of, of human consciousness to, you know, to a higher level of solidarity, something that mm-hmm. he mentions multiple times in, in the documentary, as opposed to anything remotely uh, close to Orthodox Christianity. So it didn't surprise me whatsoever to, to see him go down that route in the documentary, considering he's been on that trajectory for a while now. Almost a Schleiermacherian kind of presentation of, of religion, you could say. Yes, very much so. Okay. Dr. Barrett, your first impressions on The Heretic. Well, I like the, the word, the phrase you just used, uh, Schleiermacher. Of course, we're referring to Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, who some have labeled the, the father of what we could call modern liberalism, uh, what we today might call Protestant liberalism. I think that's a very astute observation. Because if you ask yourself, uh, as you're watching this, what is Bell's starting point? Where, where is his point of departure? It's not the Bible, as much as he talks about the Bible. It's not even Jesus Christ, really. That might be surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily the gospel, especially the gospel as evangelicals have defined it. It's with man's experience, which is... Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, the whole thing comes off as a very eager atta- um, attempt to be relevant. But actually, it sounds very much like Schleiermacher. Where is our starting point? It's with our spiritual experience. 
what is relevant, then we work from there to what the Bible is, to who Jesus is, to who God is. I found it fascinating, even shocking at times, where he says at one point, uh, the very reason religion today fails is because it's not relevant. Uh, and for him, to be relevant means God is just love. God loves, uh, he, at one point he says God's love is primarily about him loving the soil or him loving um, those who are LGBT, and, and he has a long list from there. Mm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about exactly what inclusion means for Rob Bell. This is something I was pondering as I was watching the film. Uh, inclusion of who? Um, so most um, who would profess Christ would say, anyone who is a genuine believer, I should say, would say that Jesus' death definitely does make atonement for sinners, and that's a scandalous message uh, back when Jesus preached it and today, because the human heart, frankly, doesn't want to believe that if you have done bad things, you can be forgiven. We, we naturally incline towards a works righteousness in which we become great. But, but Jesus' uh, death, which saves sinners, uh, depends upon and necessitates repentance. That's how you get included. That's uh, actual biblical inclusion. Uh, it doesn't mean inclusion of those who who name some other name, but you know feel very genuinely in their experience. As you're right, you both are rightly saying, it means that you bow the knee to Jesus, confess all your sin, and trust in His atoning death and vicarious resurrection for your sin. Bell, however, preaches a kind of message that uh, necessitates, depends upon no repentance. I mean, I was thinking as I was watching it, if I'm an axe murderer and I'm listening to Rob Bell and some of the other folks in this documentary talk about just how awesome it is to embrace a kind of doubt-driven faith, I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome. I can, I can be accepted by Jesus, apparently, right now. I don't have to repent like all these bad evangelical Christians have told me all my life. I don't have to confess my sin. I don't have to stop murdering people, apparently. Uh, I can keep on going my way. Do you, do you think this is accurate in his system, I mean? That you see it most vividly in the very, I mean, really, if you want to just know what the whole thing's about, just watch the last 30 seconds, how it concludes. You see exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, he basically says at the very end, or, or the narrator does, I, I can't remember, uh, what is the gospel for Rob Bell? It's this, you're loved exactly how you are. You're loved exactly how you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, for, for Bell, that means no repentance. Repentance for him is a really bad word because that assumes that there is condemnation, punishment, and the ultimate uh, bad word, which is hell itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't go to the direction of repentance. And if we don't go that direction, well, then Jesus really isn't about uh, a cross where he's redeeming sinners. He's about something else entirely. Yeah, I would say that as far as repentance goes, there are actually two things that Bell would advocate repentance toward. Uh, and, and for whether you're talking about evangelicals or, or anyone else, but in evangelicals more acutely, I think. Uh, the first would be repentance of making anyone feel marginalized mm -hmm. and repentance of making anyone feel somehow excluded from acceptance by God. Um, and so, you know, for someone like us or other evangelicals to claim that, say, a practicing homosexual would be outside of the kingdom of God, is anathema to Bell, but at the same time, that's exactly what Scripture says, right? The, I mean, the Word of God is exclusionary in that respect. The gospel is exclusionary in that respect. There that's are right. some who will not inherit the kingdom. 
And so you have to intentionally approach the text because I noticed that so much of the documentary is 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 uh, hermeneutic or hermeneutical in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the hermeneutics that are involved, because Bell is essentially saying, "Look, everyone's interpreted the Bible wrong, right?" And in fact, here's my book that tells you how to to read the Bible correctly. <laughs> and uh, so Rachel yes. Held Evans, for example, has a book coming out either very soon or is about to release, uh, or is previously released. I'm I'm not sure, but it, in the near future, I believe. Uh, and it's simply. Uh, the same lines as as Bell, right? You've read the Bible wrong. I'm going to tell you the right way to read the Bible. And if the Bible is read in such a way that you exclude anyone, then you are reading it wrong by default. You see this in his description of the Exodus. It, you know, the whole the whole movie really is telling because there's really very few points at, at which he actually interacts with the Bible itself in terms of the storyline of the Bible or the content. But one of one point where he does is the Exodus event. And he's describing it as he does very effectively um, as a communicator. So if you ask, well, what is the Exodus uh, event about, according to Bell? He concludes and says, the Exodus is about if you have been bullied, there's good news. No longer can the superpower with all their money and, and, and nuclear weapons, which he throws out in there, interestingly enough, uh, no longer are they going to have the, the final word over you? You now have a God who's, who's going to help you who are oppressed, whoever you are. Now, that's a, that's a, is there some truth there in the fact that Israel is under slavery, Egypt is the superpower? Sure. But I, isn't it interesting that what's missing from that picture? Passover. There's no blood mm-hmm. of the lamb being shed. There's no blood over the doorpost. There's no wrath of God. There's no bigger, larger story of is Israel being uh, liberated, not just because they're uh, experiencing oppression, but to be redeemed, uh, to be in a covenant, in a relationship with God, a saving one that they frankly don't deserve at all. That's all that seems to be missing entirely. Yeah, so we have the husk of Christian theology and even the Christian uh, narrative of the Bible. We have the the shell of it, so to speak. It could even from a distance, if you don't squint too hard, seem kind of the same. But man, you start actually listening and tuning into uh, Bell's actual presentation so far as it goes of the Christian faith, and it ends up being very different, very different from what we would be familiar with. You know, what's also really interesting here is uh, that though you both are quite right in terms of uh, Bell's inclusionary. Uh, emphasis and these sorts of things, his reworking of repentance. It's also the case that he himself is exclusionary, isn't he? Uh, in that, um, we've already mentioned this, but he talks about a better way. He actually says he has a much better way. I think I, I'm quoting precisely, much better way to read the Bible. I, I heard those words and I paused on Amazon the documentary because I and, and I rewound three times. I'm not joking to make sure that I had heard this because that is anything but a truly postmodern hermeneutic. And Matt, I think you're dead right. Matt Millsap, there's two Matts here. I think you're dead right about this being a fundamentally hermeneutical product. Mm-hmm. The, the heretic, this mm-hmm. this film, um, it's about how to interpret the Bible. And Bell says that his his hermeneutic, his way of interpreting the scripture is better than than basically ours. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and isn't it interesting? He seems to come full circle on this, right? 
because did you notice how at the beginning of the movie, documentary, whatever we want to call it, he describes his journey or his liberation out of fundamentalism and evangelicalism. I think, I think for Bell, those are probably very closely related, yes. if not one. Mm-hmm. He describes it as moving, and even his own description of how he first started pastoral ministry when he first started uh, giving sermons, uh, he describes it as, well, at first his initial instinct was to tell these people what to believe to get up there and say, this is what I've discovered. This is what you should believe. And then he realizes that's a huge mistake. That, that's a, a totally wrong approach. We need to be just asking the questions. Yes. But then at the end, he starts to move back toward that direction altogether. When he says, I've written this book about what the Bible is and what you should believe about the Bible and how you should read it. And this is, this is the way to read it. It, he's come full circle, though I don't think he's, he realizes it all. I don't think he realizes the irony on, on multiple points. So Owen wrote a piece recently for the Center of Public Theology that addressed you know, some of these concerns, but it's, it just seems so ironic for him to have such epistemological certainty regarding the way that he is telling you that you should read the Bible and should understand the Bible, yet also at the same time sort of turning in, into its own market this idea of the need to question everything that you have previously learned uh, as far as, you know, your evangelical Christian background, or if you're someone who's only nominally a Christian, you more than likely have heard everything taught to you incorrectly. And so you need to question all of that, uh, you know, questioning and doubt is elevated to the level of virtue, essentially. And yet at the same time, he still is able to exclaim that he has such certainty regarding his interpretation of the scriptures and the way that you should read them. If I can add to that, I think what was also shocking to me was I came to this, this film and he likes, he often refers to the Jesus movement or the Jesus way, different phrases. But I think I walked away surprised that there was actually very little of Jesus in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially, right. especially for a message of tolerance and inclusivism. Uh, especially for message where he's kicking against his his upbringing in many ways. Uh, it, so we can talk about the gospel, we can talk about Jesus, but when we actually talk about the teachings of Jesus, they seem to be missing from Bell's own message, at least in the film. And Jesus himself actually has some very concrete things to say about what to believe. Now, does Jesus raise questions? Yes, and in a very radical way, which Bell loves to point out again and again. And in one sense, he's right to point that out. But I think what Bell forgets is that Jesus doesn't leave those questions hanging and use them as uh, an opportunity to then justify just complete uh, inclusivism. Actually, he uses those questions to then move directly to very specific answers. And Jesus is, is very frank about it. He says eternal life hangs in the balance. Mm-hmm. Good words on Christology there. It's fascinating to see Bell essentially transitioning from being something of a Christ-promoting post-evangelical to being now basically a theist. He almost seems like that's more the ground now he's decided to hold and wants to defend and wants to promote. Everybody listening to this who is paying attention, let's broaden this beyond Bell now, who's paying attention to what we're calling the post-evangelicals, Jen Hatmaker, uh, Pete Enns, Bell, Um, Pete Rollins, numerous other figures we could mention, should know this. Like a National Geographic special, the snake is eating itself. 
That is what is taking place in real time right now. So Bell's book has just come out. Uh, Held Evans's book is coming out. And we're trying to do our part to take these ideas seriously. By the way, this isn't an ad hominem podcast or something. We're taking ideas seriously. We're not just throwing stones or calling people names. We're trying to, again, take them seriously. But you need to know this. This hermeneutic that is being promoted by the post-evangelicals that uh, radically promotes doubt, that says that doubt is the starting place, that says that you need to rethink everything except for, by the way, that which the rethinkers produce— does not hold. It cannot hold. It does not logically work. So, guys, uh, with that stated, knowing that the snake is in the process of digesting its own tail as we, as we ourselves live and breathe and talk, let's look back a few years and let's try to trace out how we got to where we are today. We were all seminarians at about the same time. The movement that was hot, that was in vogue, that was on magazine covers even, when we were in seminary, was the emergent church movement. How have we gotten from the emergent movement? And of course, we could go back and back and back, but let's just date it there, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. How have we gotten from the emergent movement uh, to today's post-evangelical movement? What would you say, uh, Dr. Barrett? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, I think that uh, it doesn't take too much memory to to remember those days when the emergent movement was hot and and pretty much the the best thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was all the talk. I mean, it was on everyone's uh, lips and mouth, and it it was it seemed to be a movement that was going to last to be here. It's interesting though, as we look back, I, I think some have even raised this question recently, and that is where has it gone? And I think that's a legitimate question. With the emergent movement, you ha- there's a whole slew of figures you could look at, Brian McLaren being one of the most significant. Uh, with that movement, there was a s- very similar uh, approach being used. That is, rather than look, well, Bell says this himself, rather than looking for, say, solutions, uh, we're looking for uh, solidarity. And by that, Bell means just human solidarity, uh, very, very broadly. That's right. And I think mm-hmm. that's an ingredient that's present that was present in the emergent movement was let's throw away this entire paradigm trying to find truth trying with a capital t trying to find answers to our questions um, and let's actually just start over raise questions without feeling the pressure to actually answer those questions and be open to anything including anything that might contradict the biblical beliefs that that we grew up believing and then from that point uh that popular movement grew and grew and then faded, and with it came a more academic version, I think we could say, which is sometimes referred to as post-foundationalism or, or sometimes a post-conservative uh, movement. Individuals like Stanley Grenz and John Frankie, who had an enormous amount of uh, influence at the academic level. Foundational voices, you could almost say. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And uh, these, these foundational voices— uh, we're not just uh, hitting the masses, but actually getting into the lectern, right? And so they are teaching both seminary master's students and undergraduate students with this type of, of new methodology. Meanwhile, you have both groups pushing back against uh, what they would call a fundamentalist movement. It's, it's interesting, wasn't it, in the, the movie where you have the very beginning starts with Franklin Graham. And then it moves to more contemporary figures. I thought that was telling because they see those individuals very much 
as what they're reacting against. So whether it's the emergent church or uh, post-foundationalism or post-conservative, there's various labels. Uh, these are the type of movements that that really are uh, preparing the way for someone like Bell, who I think goes beyond both of them, both of those movements, to a, a much more even radical message altogether. Yeah, very much so. And, and you raised the point of the emergent movement and then the questioning that came after its heyday regarding, you know, what exactly happened to it? Where is it now? And so it, I think you're right that it did seem to sort of fizzle out. But at the same time, I think it is now back in a sort of a new form now that has been largely galvanized by the rise of LGBTQ issues. Um, and so I would argue actually, too, that um, I, I don't know if we could point exactly to, say, like something equivalent to uh, Fosdick's Shall the Fundamentalist Win uh, within the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Uh, if we did try to point to something like that, that would be the equivalent. I would say it'd be like the rise of 21st century blogging from post-evangelicals on LGBTQ issues as essentially the equivalent of something like that that existed you know, back there whenever uh, Fosdick originally delivered the sermon. Um, so th- I think that those are the, the work in tandem with one another. I don't think that you quite have the rise and the prominence of Bell and other post evangelicals outside of that issue uh, being addressed in the broader culture and it coming into broader cultural acceptance, both in terms of mainline Protestantism as well as just the secular realm uh, as a whole. So I see those two as, as sort of, uh, I would say that they, they're, they're wedded to the point now that you can't really separate the one from the other, that they go hand in hand. And that's why that movement, both in terms of LGBTQ issues as well as post-evangelical, post-evangelicalism in general, excuse me, uh, needs a sort of bell-like figure as its as its main prophet, if you will. One of the things mm-hmm. I right. keep telling my students is that though those who are publishing books these days may say postmodernism is over, uh, sometimes they'll say, "Well, we're in a post postmodern state now." Uh, I like to remind students that well, that may technically be the case. I don't know. Maybe it's debatable. But when it comes to those students who are, or, or those in the church who are in the pew, uh, that's not the case at all. They are still feeling mm-hmm. feeling the heavy effects of postmodernism, which of course predates the emergent church. But the emergent church and then some of these other movements leading up to Belt are are definitely the religious version of postmodernism that has been latched onto and sort of reconfigured for uh, a church audience. Yeah, and I would say, I I agree with that. I would say that postmodernism in its late stages is seeming to be actually harder edged than modernity. So a lot of postmodernists, of course, would critique the Enlightenment with its elevation of reason and its continuing belief in objective truth, objective meaning, um, at least for, for some thinkers, some philosophers. Many postmodernists would say that there is no absolute truth. There is no objective meaning to be reaped, harvested in the cosmos. And yet, humanity's activist instinct is still very much alive. I think, I think this is a good point that the LGBT cause has, has given the movement the oomph it needed, kind of a, a jolt, um, a, a revival almost, an awakening almost in the last few years. Because we're seeing today, for example, on secular university campuses, that actually 
so-called postmodern students and postmodern faculty members are not treating all belief systems as if every pig is is equally equal. Some pigs are not equal, and uh, and some students and some worldviews and believing and expressing in a college classroom that there are only two genders, for example, that is not a tolerable view. So here's here's where circling back to my original statement, I think we're seeing that postmodernism, late postmodernism, may end up being harder edged even than modernity. Modernity, of course, birthing things like uh, the French Revolution with all its blood that it was bathed in. So there's some significant things to sort out there historically. Uh, I want to go to Dr. Millsap. We're going to have to wind this up. So many places we could go. One of the things that uh, Bell talks a lot about is wonder and beauty and mystery and rawness and pain and these sorts of things. You actually here at Midwestern College teach a class called Christianity and the Arts. You and I both share a strong aesthetic impulse. Um, Bell really is trying to sort of cultivate that aesthetic crowd. Uh, He's sending out numerous dog whistles to those who like beauty and like mystery and like wonder. He's painting people like us three as those who are the enemies of mystery, wonder, rawness, beauty, embracing, you know, all the transcendence of this place, so on and so forth. What would you say to somebody who hears Rob Bell in this film, reads his books, and then accuses us of killing an interest in beauty and wonder? Does biblical Christianity actually put the knife in the back of beauty or, or no, not? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. At all. I don't, Think that there is anything that could possibly be more beautiful or more mysterious that we would be comfortable with embracing that mystery as you know the mystery of the triune God, right? Mm. And I mean that's that's the highest level I think that you could possibly go to aesthetically, uh, as well as in terms of appreciating the mystery and the wonder of something like that. But even I think that you also see sort of uh, the majesty of, of certain doctrines themselves, for instance. So like say something for. Uh, like forensic justification, uh, for instance. That I mean, that's that's such a magisterial doctrine, if you will, that it, you cannot look at that doctrine. Or I guess you could take two perspectives, right? You could take maybe Bell's perspective on a doctrine like that and reject it entirely, right? Because of the exclusionary aspect and, and the whole component of the wrath of God being involved there, it turns God into a divine child abuser, all these arguments that we've heard over and over that's from right. that crowd, right? Or you can look at it the other way, which is to see the the grandeur of a doctrine like that and how beautiful something like that is that any of us could ever possibly be justified uh, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, upon us. And so that in itself, even though it's it's clearly delineated in Scripture, is still nonetheless mysterious whenever you really think about that and, and full of wonder and should produce awe in us. So to say that that Bell or for Bell to claim or otherwise imply that he and his crowd and and the doubts that that involves that they sort of have cornered the market on awe and mystery I think is completely wrong because whenever you take a look at what the scriptures actually teach I think we as believers are supposed to to have that same awe and mystery regarding both the teachings of scripture as well as the God who has revealed Himself to us in them. And Dr. Barrett, you're writing a whole book. You've just about finished it on the attributes of God. Can you speak to how the greatness of God, perhaps, even if you are this, you know, yellow-teethed, uh, Bible-serious Christian, actually really matter? Not you are, but, you know, in, in the portrayal of fundamentalists, I mean in the film, not you personally. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things we mentioned was that Abel doesn't seem to have 
a robust gospel in in this film. It, but it's not just the gospel. And of course, this is this is good systematic theology, right? If if someone is lacking the content of the gospel, well, it's not surprising then that their doctrine of God seems to be shallow or or empty or just missing some pieces. Is that is that present with Bell? Well, it's interesting when you watch the film, where's the Trinity? The, and you've mentioned the beauty, I love that phrase, the beauty of the Trinity. It's not there. And it can't be there because again and again, he must stress whether it's Muhammad, whether it's Gandhi, uh, whatever religion it is, he wants to be inclusive of those religions, which means that you have a very di- different understanding of who Jesus is, but then you also have an entirely different understanding of who God is. The Trinity, well, let's be honest, the Trinity is probably the first thing to go uh, if you're going to be this t- embrace this type of inclusivism. But you're right. The beauty of the Trinity, if that's missing, Christianity is no longer Christianity. I mean, Jay Gresham Machen pointed this out uh, back in 1923 when he wrote that book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. But he's right. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is not just a different type of Christianity, maybe a slightly different version. We're seeing something that's not Christianity at all. That's, that's strong and I think accurate. And I want to say as we close here to any younger evangelicals, those who watch this film and are confused by it, I want to say further, I, I'll speak on behalf of all three of us who are involved in theological education and trying to train the next generation at the, the college and the seminary level. We need to do our part to help our youth. And Bell was once in these kind of groups. Bell was once in somewhat solid evangelical settings. Um, the next Rob Bell could be in our youth group. I mean, uh, the next Rob Bell could be in our classrooms here on this campus. Um, we never know which direction a person is going to take. But we need to do our part for us three as theologians, but for, for the, the huge class out there of pastor theologians, whatever position you hold in the church, as a pastor theologian, a watchman on the wall, you need to help youth understand that God is the central good in the cosmos. There is nothing better than knowing the God of Scripture, being approved uh, by the culture and patted on the back by peers who are not Christians is not the end goal of life. You need to know as well, you need to train your students that they need to doubt their doubts. They need to question those who question everything. Those are kind of viral injections you need to make into their bloodstream. But above all, I would say, uh, as Dr. Berta said, we need, to, we need to teach them the wonder and the beauty of our glorious God and the gospel of divine grace. This is where you find these things. I really do think, guys, that this is where a lot of our, our younger types get peeled off by the kind of wonder, mystery, beauty crowd. And so we actually should be using those terms, I would actually argue, in our classrooms, in our youth groups, in our college discipleship settings, so on in our homes with our children, by the way, very significantly, so that they are not pulled away by this kind of fake aesthetic uh, theology that is in truth no no theology at all, sadly. Well, we're reminded uh, in some to pray for Rob Bell, to pray for his fellow post-evangelicals, and, and also very much to pray that the rising generation will not uh, buy the counterfeit, but will buy the real thing. Jesus Christ himself, the very Lord of the church. Thank you, men, so much for being on the podcast. Great contributions. Appreciate you both. 
Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu.